Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have, as you can see, an all-star panel today. This is exciting. We do. We have a panel. We look like the Brady Bunch, right? Everybody <laughs> look down, look over, look up. <laughs> That's exactly right. No, it means we're going to have a great conversation is what it means, because we have two wonderful human beings on with us today. We have Natasha Helper. Hi, Natasha. Hello. Nice to be and, here. Oh, we're so happy that you're here. And we have our good friend, Joel, who is also on. How are you today, Joel? I'm amazing. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> Your set looks amazing. You actually, you oh. look very well composed, like you Zoom a lot. So. <laughs> Everybody looks good. All right. We'll start out, as we often do on Mormonish, uh, by just reading the bios very quickly of our guests, and then we will dive into our topic today. So, Landon, I think you have Natasha's bio, and then I I'll do. read Joel's. Yeah. Natasha Helfer is an AASECT certified sex therapist supervisor and a licensed marriage and family therapist with almost 30 years of experience. Her expertise lies in the intersection of conservative religious upbringings and sexuality specifically in the area of deconstructing internalized sexual shame. She runs a group practice where services focus on helping people with religious trauma, reclaiming sexual desire, mixed faith relationships, coming out journeys, healing sexual shame or trauma, and exploring sexual authenticity. Natasha was excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, in 2021 for her advocacy in regards to sexual health. And we were there. We got to march with you there to That's uh, Natasha right. and support you. So, yes. <laughs> well, we were, were there when she turned in the letter. At the, the letter, yes. But we were also That's online when the, during the... Spirit, yes. During the excommunication. So. Yes, we followed that whole Wonderful. thing. <laughs> Boy, that was a story. That's a whole separate podcast, isn't it? So, but everybody did. And Natasha is just wonderful. She's one of our favorite people. So, all right, I will read Joel's bio. Uh, Joel Huntington is a native of Utah and the proud father of six kids, ranging in age from 29 to 1. <laughs> hell of a range, right hell of a range. <laughs> we can stop right there and have a conversation about that <laughs> there's a story there a story. all right wonderful children 29 to 1 uh joel works professionally in the software industry with a focus on customer success and professional services joel considers himself a citizen of the planet and has lived in work for six years in europe he earned a bachelor's degree from BYU and a master's degree from George Washington University with an emphasis in business um, and project management. Joel joins us today to represent the perspective of bishops. Twelve years ago, Joel was released while serving as a bishop because of his faith concerns. And welcome, Joel. Thank you so Thank much. You. We contacted him at the very last minute and said, you know what? You would be perfect for this conversation. And he's like, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was awesome. Yeah, let's put our slide up. So what we're going to be talking about today with our illustrious panel is something that probably has not escaped your notice. Um, in the last week, we had a situation where a video surfaced of a bishop um, in Mississippi who resigned his calling publicly from the stand. It's a seven or eight minute long video. And he talks about a lot of different things in it. But I would say the crux of it basically is the statement that we have on the screen right here. We will link that video in the show notes. It's pretty easy to find out there. There have been some other supplemental videos. But Landon, do you want to read this statement here that sort of, I think, will serve as a catalyst for our discussion today on Mormonish? 
Yeah, he says, I owe it to my ward family to hear it from me. I've asked to be released, not because of some sin, not because I'm hiding something, not at all. There's just a few things that I've been required to do that I personally cannot morally stand by. I can't, so I need to step down. Yeah, so that is what he said. He said, I'm not like, you know, people think when people leave that you're a sinner or lazy. No, he said that there were some things that he morally were was required to do and that he just he or some things that he was required to do that he morally could not stand by and of course then you know the interweb went wild with people trying to imagine what that was what they'd heard anecdotally this uh, gentleman did not post the video himself it was posted by i believe filmed by his brother and then put online by by someone else so everyone was talking about what they that could be and that's not what this podcast is about to to try to you know figure it out we had heard of course oh he'd had to ask invasive sexual questions as a bishop, or he was not able to report abuse that he had learned of in his calling of as a bishop. It could be something to do with not being able to provide financial aid or help to a family, because sometimes bishops are not encouraged to support in that way. It could be something to do with money in some other way. We don't know what it is. And so we're not, we're going to leave that story for him to tell because I'm predicting he's going to show up on Mormon stories any day now. <laughs> so probably or somebody's podcast. But we just wanted to dive into that statement things that a bishop or a leader are required to do that their internal guide or their internal compass says, I'm not comfortable with that. I can't do that. And in this case, took the pretty drastic, drastic step of stepping away publicly, you know, in front of his ward family. And later in the video, he talks a lot about the youth. And he even mentions that he stayed longer than he probably should have or would have, but he, you know, he wanted to protect youth, take care of youth. He challenged the youth from this video. He said, you know, to stand up for justice. I think he said, you know, to to call things out when you see something wrong. So you can tell he's a caring individual, you know, who, who cares about kids. So I guess first I'd like to get uh, both of yours or all of yours um, just kind of opinions on what you thought about that. And then we'll just kind of use that to frame our larger conversation of what it means to be put in a position where, you know, you end up making that statement. There are things I'm required to do that I just morally cannot do anymore. So what did you think, Natasha, when you saw that video come across your feed everywhere, right? It was everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no, it was everywhere. And and I thought it was a bit of a game changer. I, mm -hmm. I was actually... You know, usually you do hear about people who step down. It's usually done privately. Mm -hmm. If people share ideas about why they step down. I mean, this is by no means the first bishop who's who I know of who's had a yeah. faith transition throughout maybe his time of, of serving. It's usually private. It's usually, you know, speculated. Um, maybe they'll come forward and say a few things about what happened during their time serving. But to publicly which I'm, I, I mean, it's also interesting just to see how he got away with this, right? I mean, we, we know of a young girl, for example, several years ago who started in her testimony talking about being gay um, and the mic was turned off, right? And so then you can't continue to say what you want to say. So uh, for those who don't understand that the, the messages that come across from a sacrament meeting pulpit are pretty well controlled. So I'm guessing there wasn't a stake leader maybe, um, you know, at the helm, or maybe he had asked to prepare a few comments and maybe they weren't totally prepared for what he would say. I have no idea, but I do find it interesting. Um, not only did he say that, but I think he alluded to some of his 
feelings about immorality when he just talked about the basic concept we have in uh, Latter-day Saint culture, which is worthiness, right? So he talked very specifically about being able to consider yourself worthy outside of behavioral conformity to certain ideas of how we should behave. Um, and then he also did say very clearly to the youth, speak your truth, right? So that's, again, something that's not very comfortable in Latter-day Saint culture. In Latter-day Saint culture, you're supposed to conform to the truth, not speak your own truth. So these were just some really interesting, I mean, to me, those were the three most significant things he said. Wow, that's a really good take on that. Yeah, it, there are so many different levels to what he did and how people are interpreting this. What did you think, Joel, when you saw that? Well, honestly, I felt uh, a significant amount of resignation envy. Um, oh. <laughs> when I was, uh, I had been bishop for two years and I approached my state president, uh, you know, told him about my faith concerns. And after a couple of weeks, you know, we agreed that it made sense for me to be released. Uh, but when they released me, we both agreed that I wouldn't say anything about my faith concerns. So I had to just sort of, you know, sit there, be released. It was a hugely emotional experience for me. I felt like, you know, my my whole soul was being ripped, you know, ripped asunder. And uh, it led to all kinds of speculation. Um, you know, a lot of people came up to me and, and said, hey, do you have cancer? We're worried about your health. There's, you know, all kinds of speculation that happens because it's not typical, obviously, for that to happen. And so I I, I both applaud and envy, uh, you know, this this bishop's courage, I guess, for lack of a better word, being willing to, to stand and, and to kind of face that head on. I thought in an appropriate way. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't overly divisive, wasn't the, you know, trying to, you know, tear down at the same time being as direct as he could be with, uh, with what his concerns were. And I, and I applaud that kind of courage. And I think to Natasha's point, we don't see enough of that largely because some of that is sort of controlled from the pulpit. I guess the advantage is that he was the presiding officer. I imagine at that, at that meeting. And so he kind of controlled the mic there for a minute at least, but uh, large, uh, large uh, uh, respect and kudos uh, for his willingness to do that. Yeah, in fact, it seemed like people were welcoming what he was saying, kind of. He was calling people out in the audience, you know, and saying, brother, so-and-so and this and that. Like nobody, you couldn't really hear that there was anyone going, oh, you know, which you might expect. Or that, like you said, that hook that kind of pulls you off when you're <laughs> not allowed to talk anymore. So, Landon, what was your take on all that? We talked about I, it a little I, bit yesterday. I, I, I think anyone who has uh, had a faith crisis or who has had to step away from the church can empathize with what he was saying and how difficult it is. You never know when to say, what to say, how to say it. Uh, and so it, it was almost heartbreaking as you listened to him say it, you know, because you could tell that it, it was a very difficult thing for him, just as it is for all of us uh, who have had to to make that. But uh, as I listened, I, I was just, I, I was going, finally, this is what leadership is when you are when you are supposed to be a moral leader and you don't stand up for what you can't morally do then you're not really a moral leader and we haven't seen moral leadership in the church when we saw the the ladies in uh in the San Francisco area who had to were asked to step down from the stand even though all the men said oh we've been doing this and we like it who stood up for him? How come nobody stood up and said, this is unacceptable? We're not going to do this. Here, somebody took a stand and they said, I'm not going to do it. And that to me, I, I, it was kind of a proud moment. And, and we need more of that. These bishops and these moral leaders need to stand up and say, we can't continue to lie to the people. We can't continue to 
uh, cover up the abuse. We can't continue down this road. We can't continue to take people's money and invest it in real estate and other things. It's time for moral leadership to stand up. And I felt like somebody finally stood up. Yeah. No, I think a lot of us had that reaction when we saw mm -hmm. that. So, but but then we started thinking about that question. And I think that's that's what we're going to talk about today. We we actually, we did what a lot of podcasters do and, and it's a problem. We start discussing what we're going to talk about and then we have this awesome conversation and then we're <laughs> like, oh no, we need to hit record because we're already talking about this. So no, I think this is going to be great. So what we were talking about and what we want to talk about today um, in the framework of this video that's come out and all of us thinking now about about uh, personal morality, personal accountability, and then being part of an institution where you're asked to do something that's different. So I think maybe my first question to start this out might be for Joel, who called as a new bishop. Um, did you did you initially even have concerns that something might butt up against how you felt internally and what you might have to do? Or as a TBM, did you just think everything would be just fine? How could anything go wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, that's such a good question. And, and obviously, bishops arrive to that calling through lots of different ways, right? And and at different positions in, in, in how they feel about things. But actually, when I when they extended the, the the calling for me to be a bishop, I already had some lingering uh, faith questions. And I debated, gosh, do I accept this calling knowing that I have some of those lingering uh, faith questions? In the end, I felt that if there were any calling in the church that could help me to overcome those faith questions, it would be that of a bishop. And so I, I ultimately decided to accept the calling for that. So I already kind of approached the calling with some of these questions in mind. Having said that, uh, within the context of being a bishop, whether you are uh, full TBM or you're sort of advanced along the path a little bit of being a little more progressive or nuanced or how you think about it, th there are countless instances where you sort of face this question of, I know what, I, what my upper leaders are instructing me to do and how to do it, right? Bishops do have training. It's an inadequate amount of training, especially in the areas of, of, of mental health, um, but they do have some training. And so as you approach these questions, there's always this, gosh, I know that I uh, you know, came to that position being a business leader and having no other experience in the field of counseling or therapy or any other expertise that would otherwise make me a, a capable leader in that case. Um, and so there's this belief, right, that that you have that, gosh, that I can safely do what the church has asked me to do because I trust the source from where that instruction is coming. And that's really dangerous, right? Um, as a bishop, obviously, and then I'll, I'll shut up here, as a bishop, the expectation is that you're involved in everything from the administration of finances to the to the logistical organization of the ward to these one-on-one uh, -on -one counseling sessions to couples therapy uh, and the whole range and at any point in that you you obviously have to, to face questions of how do i feel about this what the church tells me i ought to do versus what i know or believe should be right and it creates some really tricky questions right especially in the areas of when you're dealing with sexual uh, confessions or dealing in those kind of situations, um, even the appropriateness of whether or not you should, you know, hear or even like probe or ask questions about what it means, what the, what the person is, you know, did as part of a sin, that can be a really tricky area. And I know that I wish that I could say that I handled that perfectly. I think looking back on on what I did as a bishop, I'm, I'm overall uh, pleased with uh, sort of the progressive approach that I took, but there's also in retrospect some things that I would 100% be embarrassed about 
that, that I did that in today's context, I would feel morally repugnant. Yeah, I can see that. Absolutely. What are your thoughts, Natasha, on just the idea of somebody like a Joel, a great person, moral person being thrown into that scenario? We talked about the training <laughs> that you and Pete, you know, it is just hearing what Joel went through, all the things that you're supposed to do. How in the world? I mean, honestly, <laughs> that list of things that you're supposed to do. And you also have to understand on the other side of it, of course, that people trust you implicitly, right? You can give marriage counseling. You can give all the, you know, they don't look to outside sources. They look to you as a bishop. I mean, ah, what are your thoughts, Natasha? Yeah, well, and even even going back to what you said, Joel, when you had your experience, people came up to you and at least what they said to you to your face was the assumption that you maybe had cancer. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so but we know, be? for sure we behind know, closed doors there yeah. were a lot more other kind of rumors. You're right, Natasha, for sure. Right. That's the thing. We know that in Latter-day Saint culture, if you get released early from a calling, the only valid reasons would be something like you're on your deathbed yeah. or you have had some type of sexual sin. And so that's why I thought it was very important as well that this bishop advocated for himself and basically said, there is no sin here, you know? And of course, I'm sure a lot of people won't even believe him in that regard. And maybe, you know, the, the idea of losing your faith is, is considered a sin to LDS folks as well. But um, that, that I think was very important because again, we, we come from a culture that is very, anxious and wound up, especially in regards to sexuality and sexual sin. And when I think about these men going into these spaces, you know, a lot of times there's been a lot of uproar about who's in the space with the man, right? Like if you have a woman or if you have a minor, there's a, a clear power differential, especially when this man is representing God, that's why there's that implicit trust, right? Because there's no distinction really between being able to say, huh, we're not very good in Latter-day Saint culture until at least you've been dead for 50 years to say, maybe you were wrong about that because, <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't, you know, maybe you were a man, a fallible man, but while you're in office and even Elder Oaks has been very clear about this, you're just supposed to trust that they are not infallible, that they're supposed to be receiving revelation and inspiration. And that's why that implicit trust is there. But so, yeah, so there's a power differential for anybody who has less power than the bishop, even a cis white man has less power than the bishop in that situation. So there's a clear power differential. And anytime there's power differentials, there's there's potential for trauma, for harm, for all kinds of things. I'm not saying all of it is. I mean, there's there's beautiful things that can happen in a bishop's office as well. Um, I've been both harmed and beautifully helped by bishops in my own life. Um but when I think about even bishops themselves, and I've been saying this for years, I'm like, this is such a vulnerable position to put bishops in. Most of these men, most of these men are not abusers, are not predators. You know, they're, they're men in the community who are already busy with their own careers, their own lives. There's no professional, this is a lay clergy. There's no actual train, the training that you're talking about. I've seen it, Joel. It's laughable. I'm sorry to say it's laughable, Right. And, and most of it is incorrect training when it comes to mental health and sexual health training, because if you're going to tell bishops that it's perfectly appropriate to ask, you know, 16 year old if they're masturbating or not, you're already going against the American Pediatric Association on what's considered normal sexual development, right? So it's incorrect training. 
And then they're putting you in that position, that vulnerable position of you having power behind closed doors to be alone with a woman, to be alone with an LGBTQ person, to be alone with a minor, where even if a power differential has not, or even an abuse has not occurred, but has been felt or has been interpreted that way, you are now, you know, pretty vulnerable, pretty vulnerable. I remember when I was still a member and, you know, active and I was married and I was telling my ex, I'm not sure I would be comfortable with you having that calling. That's a scary calling. Once you start understanding the legalities of the 20, you know, we're in 2023 people, Mm -hmm. the legalities of our cultures, the, the, the grand, um, I mean, we have made so much progress in understanding sexuality and understanding mental health just in the 30 years that I've been a therapist. We, we were, we were ahead of the Mormon church 30 years ago when I was just training, which started, of course, my discomfort with some of the things that I was hearing at church versus some of the things I was hearing in my training. And that's just speeding up. I mean, we are speeding up with Mm -hmm. research, with technology, with knowledge. And, um, and so just some of our basic positions, this is what I think is so difficult for church members sometimes to sit with some of our basic positions are immoral. For example, how we discriminate against LGBTQ members in our church. That's an immoral thing that we are currently doing every single day. To have a position that to be gay is a transgression or a temptation and all of that you can find on the church's website today, along with a scripture that says it would be better you be hanged than have this type of sin. You can find that right now, you know, January 7th, 2024 on the LDS website. To me, that is incredibly immoral and that we're, we're actually, we're, we're taught not even as bishops, but as parents to teach our children um, misinformation about their sexuality. Yep. Thoughts on that, Joel, (laughs) having been on the other side of that desk, did you ever feel, I don't know, vulnerably in danger or that there might be something, did you even sense that? I I don't think a lot of people do. I mean, I had, I'll tell this uh, very quickly before, before you answer, I had a brother-in-law who very early on, way before Sam Young, refused to close the door on a youth interviews, on any of his youth interviews, and also invited parents in. He's just like, I'm not doing it. I'm not, I don't want to do it. I don't feel good about it. I'm not. And he did take some flack from upper management, you know, upper leadership is no, you have to be in there alone. You have to, you know, but he wouldn't do it. So there is that sense. I think that some people do start to recognize this is not the greatest situation for me or the person that I'm, even though the intent is pure and good as a bishop, all you want to do is help most, most of them anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So thoughts on that, Joel? Yeah, I think, you know, it's easy for those of us in kind of the post-Mormon community to, to vilify and and villain and to, to look at uh, church leaders and to, and to maybe put a level of nefariousness next yeah. to them that, that probably is not warranted, to be honest, right? Because if I look at those who um, I've known as bishops, those that I interacted with, uh, most state presidents fell into the same bucket. They're just like me, right? They're just like us. They're just normal people who didn't aspire to be there, but got put there anyway. And and you're right, that is a very vulnerable position to be in right now. A couple of things make that even more complicated. One, uh, not only do you know that you're not uh, as capable or qualified to be there as you ought to be, but you have this belief that you have to take on as well as put upon you by other members of the church that you have this 
common judge of Israel level of discernment, right? Because the bishop is called a common judge in Israel, which means that they're sort of in, in, imbued with uh, supernatural powers, which gives them the ability to be an all-star all-star marriage therapist and a, and a and a and a perfect career counselor <laughs> and a sexual therapist, all rolled up into one big like crazy ball, right? Um, and so being in that position uh, does create a, a, a fair amount of not only imposter syndrome, but downright, gosh, how, how do I show up in a way that that will meet those needs, right? And so I, I have a great amount of empathy for, for not only this bishop in, in Mississippi, but, but others as well who wrestle with those questions of, of how do I do this? Now, I get the sense from what I see of this bishop in Mississippi that he's already fairly far along his faith journey, right? I don't get the sense that he is a traditional, true-believing Mormon who just got asked to do something morally repugnant, so, which kind of leads me to believe that he's, because he's a little further down that path, some of the things that we would consider more morally repugnant than a, a true believer might are probably coming into play with how he's thinking about these things. Not to speculate what those things were, but I know that if, if I were to be a bishop today, there's a whole range of things that I would find morally unacceptable that I wouldn't have as a TBM. For example, the the, the male dominancy in the uh, in the LDS church would be morally unacceptable to me, right? I, I would not serve again as a, as a bishop unless I had the assurance of having female counselors with me, for example, right? Um, and, and that would not be the same level of moral uh, question that a true believing male priesthood holder would have in the church today, right? So I think there's different ways of, of looking at what it means to be morally acceptable or not. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that, Landon? You served in one or two bishoprics, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I served in several bishoprics, but to me, the the, the more concerning part was that as a scoutmaster, uh, you know, the, the, the rule as a scoutmaster was you were never to be alone with the boys, uh, you were always to have too deep leadership whenever you were with the boys. And, you know, we, we always practice that. But then all of a sudden with the bishop, that that rule just goes out the door. Uh, you know, why, why are we trained one way that this is the standard? And then as, as soon as you have this mantle, you're all of a sudden allowed to, to do that. And, and that was for the leader's protection as much as for the boy's protection, because anything could be claimed anywhere. Uh, and so I, I certainly felt it, in uh, the place I felt most vulnerable was when I was a scoutmaster that anything could be claimed at any time. Uh, and, and so you had to be very careful. So I can certainly understand a bishop where it's even more intimate uh, setting that you would definitely be in, in a position that, that you wouldn't want to be in. Any thoughts on that, Natasha? Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring up this idea, Joel, of what is what do we consider moral, depending on what our worldview is. And of course, we see that everywhere, right? Whether it's religious differences, whether it's political differences, whether it's ideas about the environment, or, you know, vaccines, about healthcare. I mean, you know, people have very strong positions about what they feel is right or what they feel is moral, uh, depending a lot on their worldview. Um, my concern is that, uh, well, first of all, even me, I, I, I wasn't a person that lost my testimony and necessarily, you know, in the quote unquote classic LDS way that we talk about that, whatever that means, <laughs> but it wasn't that I had lost my testimony and was looking to leave the church. I was very much invested in my church community. I was in the church. Um, I would say my testimony had definitely evolved 
right? And, and I think there are many more members like me in the church where they're still in, um, but they have gay friends, right? They have a member of, the, of their family who was disciplined by the church. There, there's somebody who's had sexual trauma who was treated inappropriately in a repentance process, for example. Like people have more and more of these experiences. And so I think that sitting with this morality of what is moral as a Latter-day Saint, especially if you're anywhere in the progressive nuanced perspective, which I think we have many members who are, is what starts those shelves, right? We talk, you know, if you talk to post-Mormons, they'll talk about this shelving process, right? Like, well, yeah, that bothered me. That didn't sit well with me, but the church leader said that's how it had to be, put it on the shelf, right? And then it's like, oh, that's another thing that bothers me, put it on the shelf. And 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 I, I do think that we are lacking a, a robust conversation, which of course is very hard to do in conservative, strict and fundamental religions, because we're kind of not, we're not primed. We're not really, we're not in a culture where conversation is welcome. It's more again about leadership down, but we are missing robust conversations about what morality even means. Even a bishop, you know, being in a position where they have to excommunicate somebody, discipline somebody, um, disfellowship somebody, take away their temple recommend. Those are all, you know, again, in 2023, these are kind of punitive behaviors that maybe in 1800, there was a lot of punitiveness, you know, in the culture, right? I mean, we, we come from one of the best screenplays is the Scarlet Letter, right? I mean, we, <laughs> we have like punitive history, you know, in this country, but for the most part, the culture has moved on from that. Right. And yet we we're still practicing what, what, what felt to me. And I think what feels to a lot of people is spiritually abusive practices, just in this disciplinary way that I'm going to act like the, the, the parent and you're the naughty kid, even though you're 55 years old or 70 years old or whatever <laughs> your age is. And, and I'm going to make sure you feel naughty until you do what's right and come back and repent. And then here's your reward. And now we can call you worthy. Just that process, I think, just doesn't sit well with normal adult development, what we understand about mental health, what we understand about spiritual community, what we understand about the importance of, if we're going to talk about church being helpful, it's mainly due to community and meaning of life. Um, and, and we interfere even with those things, right? As the LDS church. Rebecca, yeah. I'd love to hear your perspective uh, being both a former leader in the church, but also as a, you know, a, a member and how you interacted with these type of situations. For sure. Sorry, who did you ask? You. <laughs> Me. I was like, I thought you said Landon. So I was like a leader. I was never, le yeah, I was never a leader in the church. I always, I always tell everybody I was a- You were a primary chorister. That is all kinds of- I was a primary pianist by design. No, I was very agnostic, even from a child, because I was raised in such a fundamental way, you know, and I had a lot of anxiety at church. I had a lot of fear of talking to leaders like bishops and men, and I did have a lot of horrific- experiences of extremely invasive questions and inappropriateness from leaders and things like that. So I, you know, when I, when I try to compartmentalize that as a grown ass woman, I look back and I do try to think about these leaders and think, you know, maybe they were struggling in their own right. You know, maybe they were just doing it. They were told while they were enacting these abuses on me. And I, I'm saying growing up in the era of the seventies and eighties, it happened to all of us, right? We all had these bishops and, and these 
questions that were asked and these things that were kind of put on you and um, that you had to deal with. So I do feel, but for some reason, I always just had this innate fear of, of leadership and, and people that would come at me and ask me things and put me in these positions. So I don't know. I tried very hard to stay away from any of that. I tried to just be, how did I put it, um, of but not in the church. Does that make sense? <laughs> like relegate myself to things like scouting and to primary pianists, things like that, just, just off to the side. But I, I do think... It kind of all came to a head for me when I had my own children. And I remember thinking, um, when I have my girls, I'm going to protect them from this kind of stuff, this kind of bishops interviews, these kinds of things that happen. Because my whole thought when I was driven by my parents to these interviews and things like that, that my parents wanted me to be there. You know, they wanted me to go through this. They wanted this inappropriate stuff to happen to me. And that's why... I said, okay, I guess this is what happens. My parents have driven here. So I thought, okay, I don't ever want my kids to feel like that. Well, I never had any girls. I only had boys. And so I really did drop the ball on that. I didn't really imagine that boys would have the same kind of problems with the same kind of questions and invasiveness from bishops. And I tell this story a lot about how one of my big moments where I realized to this point, I was kind of going along in the church going, all right, it is what it is. I don't necessarily believe, but I'm here and I'm just doing it. I didn't really see it as harmful, even though I had had things that harmed me. I didn't see it as a whole as harmful. Um, but my oldest son, when he was a teenager, had quite a lot of anxiety at church. And it was exasperated um, by bishops' interviews and invasiveness to the point where he would have panic attacks. I mean came home one day to see him in tears, panic attack at the kitchen table, having just gone through, through an interview. And at that point, I was finally like jarred awake, right? And realized this harm that was happening to this particular kid and the way he interacted with the leadership that was questioning him and sort of harassing him about things. And so I told him, you don't ever have to go back. You know, that's kind of a big step for an LDS parent to say to their child, right? Because you're supposed to do the opposite. You're supposed to do everything you can to keep them going. And I said, you don't ever have to go back. And that was that was a big break for me. And it really did come because of finally recognizing the true harm. I knew I'd been harmed, but I just kind of accepted it. But when I saw my child, my son being harmed, which I was not prepared for, I was, I was ready to champion my girls, but I never had them. I only had boys. Um, it was a moment where I realized, okay, there's something really wrong here and you don't ever have to go back and you don't ever have to be a part of that again. You know, My other sons didn't really have much of a problem talking to bishops about things like that. They just kind of rolled off them. So just like there are different kinds of leaders, there are different kinds of kids too. But ever since then, when Sam Young started his you know, campaign, that was one of the first overt actions I took. I said, okay, I'm going to write my story of what happened to me um, in his, he had that online site, you know, where you can go and you can, you can share your story. That's the first kind of step that I ever took. I said, wow. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this. I mean, you know, and, and what happened to me was not at all as bad as so many people. I mean, I basically had a bishop who I was very naive and he asked me, do you masturbate? And I didn't know what that was. I had no idea about anything. I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know about maturation. I didn't know anything. I was raised in a very naive environment at home. And so I just kind of deer in the headlights, shook my head. And he said, <laughs> I can tell you don't know what that means. And I thought, oh, good. Now I'll be left alone. And then he said, so I'm going to tell you what it means. So you can tell me if you do it. And then he told me what it was. 
you know, in, in all the detail that you can imagine, you know, and, and again, I had that thought in the back of my mind, my dad's outside in our brown station wagon, because it was at his home, I'd been driven to his home. And, and I thought he must want me to hear this. So I'll hear it. And, and what's interesting, you know, is that what it actually did to me is it put me on sort of a, a hypersexual path of study. I wanted to know what that was. What is this world? I went to the dictionary. I'm looking things up. And Natasha, you can probably speak to this. That I think children can be sort of sexualized in that way. It sort of happened to me. It was not on my radar. Suddenly it was. And I was trying to find out what does this mean? What's this about? How does this relate to me? What do people do? What are the facts of life? I mean, it definitely sent me on a different course. And this was my bishop talking to me. So I don't know. Do you find that, Natasha? Is that a danger of talking to? I mean, now we're talking about children as young as 11, right? That can go in and and have these kinds of things said to them. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I have several opinions. I mean, I think <laughs> I that an 11 and 12 year old who goes yeah. into the bishop's office and doesn't know about ma masturbation, yeah. there's something already immoral happening both in our country and in our parenting and in our church systems that children do not have access to sexual education appropriately delivered. Yeah. Appropriately delivered, developmentally accurate. Uh, sexual education. 12-year-olds should know what masturbation is. 11-year-olds should know what it is. But um, but again, this goes kind of goes back to Joel's point. In what other setting would you have a parent say, oh yeah, this this adult, you know, in, a, in, a, in closed doors, talk to my kids and explain to them what masturbation was. Um, in school systems, you have you can opt out as a parent from having basic sex education, which doesn't even include masturbation. <laughs> and so, um, so and, and parents oftentimes opt out because again, this anxiety that I can't have other people teach my kids about sex, even though I'm not teaching them about sex either half the time, right? And so, um, so this is one of those things that I think is immoral. Is that I don't think our children, our teenagers, or even our emerging adults have access to accurate information. And, and yes, these days, where do they go? I mean, you went to the dictionary. These days, they go look at masturbation on the internet. So as soon as you push in masturbation on the internet, I can guarantee you're going to get a lot more than Webster's definition of what, you know, what that is. And, and again, we don't have any porn literacy. We don't have, we don't talk to kids about what they might find on the internet until usually it's already been found. And so yeah, that can be really jarring. That can be really, you know, difficult, confusing, overwhelming for a young kid to come across uh, sexually explicit materials when they're not prepared for anything. So we're not doing a good job preparing. You know, I find that highly immoral, if, if that makes sense. Natasha, how often do you feel that parents almost use the bishop as their sex education training? I don't want to talk to my kids about it. Let, right. Let the bishop or even just or even standards night. I mean, you know, standards night will be our kids sex education, which, again, is just prohibitive, fear based misinformation that we're giving children about you know, marital heterosexual sexuality being the only route to sexual expression, um, which we know, again, that that's just not the case, right? And then the other thing that I just want to point out here too, is all of these things I think are, are spiritually sexually abusive, right? I think what happened to you, Rebecca, was a spiritual sexual abuse moment for your life that, that caused trauma. Now, we also know that about a third of us 
have actual sexual trauma happening to us, you know, from childhood on. So that's a whole nother thing that's not getting addressed. And what really just burns me to the core is how many stories I've had where a person went in talking about something sexual, saying, yes, maybe I masturbate or yes, I did something on this date or, you know, whatever it was with the the bishop having zero concepts, you know, this is not the bishop's fault, zero concept that what the act, what that person might actually be talking to them about is trauma, something that happened that was unwanted, something that happened that was confusing. We also know, I mean, even though masturbation is very common uh, for, for all kinds of people, but we also know that sometimes for people who've been abused, masturbation becomes a coping kind of soothing mechanism. So here you're, you're, you're punishing a person religiously for something that's happened that has been affected by sexual trauma with zero training on that. Um, the amount of people I've had had to go through their own confessional and repentance processes because they basically went through a date rape. I, I can't even count the numbers. I can't even, I can't even keep track of these stories, right? Um, those are things that sometimes after months in a, in a therapy session, you know, therapy kind of a setting with me, I may come out months, if not years later, that a person may say to me, you know, I know I've been talking about this, but I really haven't told you this detail. I'm like, okay, you know, and, and let's sit with that. Um, so as a therapist, I'm not in a position to punish or to call people to repentance, but imagine I, I'm not this idea that somehow in a confessional, you're getting all the information that's contextually accurate to that person's situation. is just, again, ignorant. And, and I, even though I think I agree that a lot of people are good in the church, I just have zero empathy at this point for a billion dollar church to not have invested training into trauma-informed care as far as the upper echelon of leadership. So when people tell me, well, they're old, they just don't know. I'm like, no, you have enough power and money to know, to know. And not only that, many of us have been trying to tell you. We've been trying to tell you. <laughs> and have been shut down <laughs> completely, right? How many LGBTQ folks have I, how many mama dragons have sat with right. apostles themselves, right. right? And told them my child is in danger of suicide because of what's happening in church. This, for me, this no longer is, it's, it's almost like a willful ignorance. Mm -hmm. And when I think, when I think of willful ignorance to me, now you have blood on your hands. To me, that's a sin. That's the sin because that's what happened to me. I sat with people. I had all of these horrible ideas 30 years ago, mm -hmm. I thought homosexuality was a sin. I thought all kinds of sexual stuff was a sin. You know, I was miss, you know, goody two shoes, Mormon therapist ready to, you know, only really help heterosexually Mormon couples. I mean, really, that's all I was ready to do. And, and as I sat with people's experiences, that's what changed my heart along with, of course, the trainings, you know, those two things combined for me were a, a game. I could know I was no longer ignorant. I couldn't be ignorant people's experiences right in front of me showed me there was something wrong with my worldview. How, how much of that, Natasha, do you think as a bishop where you're only in for five years and, it, you know, you, you, you've you been doing this for 30 years and you're learning and learning and learning and a bishop five years and then you're out and it's a new guy 
he doesn't even hardly get to learn what he doesn't know yet. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I mean, this wasn't, it didn't take me 30 years to figure out homosexuality wasn't a sin. I was figuring that out in 1999. Right. So having graduated from BYU, you know, in 1992 or whatever, whenever the heck I graduated and 1994, I'm, anyway, so it didn't take me <laughs> that, that long, right. To start thinking, wait a minute, this isn't Okay. And what my my BYU professor said about homosexuality being like alcoholism, you know, that it's a temptation that you have to like, you know, it's sad that you have it, but, you know, you have to, you know, stay away from it. Uh, Yeah, that did not follow, you know, so I guess I'm just like, it didn't take me that long. It didn't take me 30 years. I think five years is plenty to sit with people and to start thinking some of this isn't working. Plus to Joel's point, uh, and even to your point, Landon, you don't get to be a bishop without having sat with people probably already. You were already in a either a young men's, you know, leadership or, you know, elders quorum leadership, or you've already been sitting with people and hearing people's experiences. Um, now it's just, a, you know, much more personal. So that's that's what's so difficult to me. And I guess back one other thing I'll say to Rebecca's point, you know, you were scared of leadership. I'm too feisty in Italian to be scared of leadership. So my experience with leadership was not that I was scared of them. I was willing to collaborate with them. I was like, here's what I have to say. And here's what I have to do. And I remember when I was Relief Society president, I had a bishop who was super open to that, you know, and really treated me like, you know, an equal partnership. Um, But as I started talking about these mental health and sexual health things, I would just be shut down. So it wasn't that I was scared. I was just like, livid that here's this thing that I've just shared with you. And <clears throat> there's no room. You know, I'm just being treated condescendingly like a pat pat, like, oh, sister helper. You know, we have to put up with her again, you know, kind of a thing. And where this really burned me, because, you know, you talked about your son, Rebecca. It really burned me with my son who still wanted to attend church. I had the same concerns you did about worthiness interviews. And I had told my kids, you know, you don't need to answer these questions. And I looked at all the materials and all the correlated, you know, trainings. And it, what's the question that's supposed to be asked? It's, do you follow the law of chastity? And I'm like, okay, you know, for us and our family, that's what this means. And it does not mean that you can't masturbate. Mm -hmm. So then when I went into the bishop's office and said, I'm the mother, you do not have permission to ask any question that isn't on those basic questions. And he looked at me, he's like, well, and I'm like, (laughs) and he's like, well, we've been asked by the stake president to specifically ask the young men about masturbation and pornography. And I'm like, where is that? Where is that in the church correlated materials that you have the right to do that? And so you can see how, even as a parent, I had lost authority. Because now my son is in a position where if he doesn't answer those questions, if we just say, well, we're not going to work, you know, he's not allowed to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. His mom says he's not allowed to answer those questions. Well, then the bishop said, well, I get, I get it. You could tell he was one of these that was like, oh, anyway, he's like, (laughs) he's like, I get it. But then I can't give him a temple recommend. Oh, so now my son, who's like a super cool kid is not going to be able to go to the temple with his friends or pass the sacrament with his friends or, you know, be promoted in the priesthood things like all the other normal young men, because I 
rightfully so as a parent, don't want a man asking my son behind closed doors about whether or not he touches his own penis and whether or not he looks at explicit materials, which quite frankly is my job to figure out as his mom. Yep. Wow. No, that is so supercharged. Oh my gosh. Joel, you had a similar experience, and I don't know if you're comfortable sharing yeah. it or not, but as a state, that a state president set a certain standard uh, at, when you were a bishop. Um, yeah, and that's so arbitrary. Yeah, really... that, that's what's so arbitrary, that, that any state president can step in and say, no, this is how we do it here. And then the bishop, the child, everyone is a victim of that. Yeah, it, it, it's really hard, right? Because, and I'll, I'll share, I think, the experience that you're talking about there, Landon, but uh, in my hall of shame, things that I did as a bishop that I look back on and say, what the hell was I doing or thinking? Um, Like, there's a number of them, to be fair. But there were, you know, obviously, bishops work with people going on missions, young men preparing to go on missions all the time, some go, some don't. One young man that I was that I was working with to go on a mission, our, our stake, not unlike many stakes, had a rule that you couldn't go on a mission within six months of masturbation, right? That you had to kind of white knuckle it and be at least six months clean of masturbation before you went, right? And so that that led to a lot of the intrusive kind of dialogue that I think Natasha is cautioning against is that it went way beyond the spirit of the law and became a very explicit conversation where it should not have been for sure, right? And I had one young man who was particularly sensitive about what living the law of chastity means, and he, he told me about a wet dream that he had, right, where he woke up in the middle of the night uh, having ejaculated. And, and for him, he wrestled with this question of, does that now constitute uh, being masturbation, right? He, he also, in the course of things, mentioned that to the state president. And the state president asked me to dig a little deeper, right? So now I have to sit down with this young man and, and kind of explore, gosh, how awake were you? <laughs> Were you fully awake? Were you not awake? Like, uh, and and then it, it got even more complicated. I'm just gonna breathe through this. I'm just gonna breathe. Through yeah. This. No, <laughs> we're all just like, jeez. Uh, um, and and this sounds like I'm being critical of the state president. I'm not because it could have just as easily been me in that position, right? Because you have these men who grew up in the time of Boyd Packer's Little Factory, yeah. where. Um, and they want to do the right thing. They want to. They want to uh, follow the rules. They want to like be stewards of what it means to like be law. You know, to, to follow the commandments and all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm not being critical of the state president in this case. I empathize with him more than anything. But he he asked me to actually call church headquarters, um, talk to the missionary department about how they view wet dreams. And so I called the church's wet dream department. It's not listed in the phone book, but it's there. So I called the church's wet dream department. Um, and, and honestly, the, the church was like, without saying it, they're like, you guys are way too deep in this conversation. <laughs> you all need to back off, um, because you're getting way too consumed with this when you shouldn't be right. And, and you know, he went on to say, you know, the reality is the majority of missionaries routinely, you know, masturbate while they're on their mission. And we put way too much weight into this, you know, leading up to them going on a mission. And, and I was actually refreshed that I got a reasonable answer, I thought, at least within the context of Mormonism, I got a reasonable answer from church headquarters about this response. In other words, saying, back off, you're too deep, this is not healthy or necessary for you to go this deep. And where this, I think, besides just being like in my hall of shame, um, where I think this creates all kinds of interesting questions for me as it relates to morality is 
who was the who was the villain in this story, right? If I'm the bishop in Mississippi and I, I'm leaving the church or at least the position of bishop because I can't morally abide by what I'm being asked to do, who do I blame in this situation, right? Uh, do I blame myself? Maybe, but I was just kind of doing what I thought was right with the context that I had. Do I blame the state president? He was just doing what he thought. I don't think he approached this with any kind of weird voyeuristic like need to kind of dig deeper on these things. Uh, do I, and certainly don't blame the the young man. Um, and and I more than anything, I'm like, gosh, I probably contributed to some form of of abuse to that that young man who now is like being torn apart because he's wrestling with these questions of a really natural, healthy thing and it's tearing him apart, right? Um, and so the only, coming back to Natasha's point, I think the only villain in this story are those who are informed at the highest levels of leadership that what they're doing is wrong and choose not to do anything about it because it would either damage the religion or damage the financial bottom line. I know um, that the church has to make trade-off decisions and they routinely make decisions around uh, collateral damage, that if we take a certain position, we're going to lose a certain number of people. And if we take another position, we're going to lose a certain number of people. And, and that to me is where the moral blame lies, is, is where, where people are considered okay collateral damage because of these really damaging decisions, right? So I'll jump off my soapbox, but it, it's 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 really... <laughs> Hard it's question. Right in time for me to get back on it. No, I was going to say. Get right back. Whoa, Natasha. Even the little factory talk, I'll just say before Natasha says that there is a natural release valve. I mean, in this ridiculous <laughs> metaphor, it does discuss that a wet dream is the natural way that it's going to be taken care of. And you just wait for that to happen. So obviously the state president didn't even really read the fine print of the little factory talk. The factory, yeah, there was some steam, that, steam going off there that I yeah, probably should have Blowing said. off some steam. Well, there I, you go. I can't imagine what that does to the young man uh, who who is... You know, everyone's talking about this wet dream and everyone's passing it on to everybody. That's just got to be humiliating. Have you yeah, heard he's the, he's the subject of all of this, like <laughs> forensic investigation, right? That, that, yeah. Horrible, Brandon. Absolutely yeah. horrible. So. Well, and and yes, I would agree with you that the, that the villain here is the lack of training, right? Because why is it? so difficult in the, in the, I mean, if we know we're good at anything in, in Mormon land, it's correlated materials, right? And so why isn't it, I mean, I don't, you know, even with your idea of like, what, at what cost will this come? I mean, how hard is it to just say, stick to the, to the, you know, to these questions, any other question is seen as inappropriate, right? And, um, and even, and, and I think too, there's just no training in what to do if the answer is yes, because let's say you say, okay, well, are you following the law of chastity? And the person says, no, I, I'm not following the law of chastity. Okay, well then where, what training did you receive as to what mm -hmm. kinds of questions would be appropriate to ask next, yeah. right? And this is where we get people who've been asked, what color underwear were you wearing? Because if you were wearing red panties, maybe that meant that you planned on having sex with your boyfriend. Or, you know, was your hand above the clothing or below the clothing? All yeah, that and how, and you know, was there insertion? When you say he touched you, well, did he, you know, did he put that digital finger into your yeah. vagina? I mean, who gets to ask who who's training in regards to what kinds of questions are being asked? And 
my understanding, I've never heard anybody say, oh, yes, we were we were asked to ask these follow up questions. So to me, at the basic level, there should be a training that says do not ask more questions than what we as the church have said is is appropriate. And then there should be some idea of what to ask later, which of course, I think then you get into some really messy areas, but having zero training is already, you know, in messy areas. So that's, that's one of the things. And then the other thing that I'm thinking of, like what kid comes into your office asking about a wet dream? You, you, you already kind of put your finger on it in a non-clinical way. You said he was sensitive. I'm like, he probably had OCD scrupulosity and an anxiety disorder, right? So you're like, yeah, I'm noticing something different about this kid because who the rest of the normal kids, they're already rolling their eyes at their bishop. They could care less if they're masturbating. They're not scrupulously attending. So what, what bothers me even more is that the kids we harm the most are actually usually the ones who are already most perfectionistic because they're the ones coming in and talking to you and feeling guilty about this kind of stuff, right? I, I remember the last standards meeting I went to, which I really had a hard time just sitting my butt through that whole thing. Um, but I, I remember being, I'm going to look around and see what the reaction to this is. And it was like every fifth kid, you know, every fifth kid was like, and the rest of the kids were scrolling on their phones and whispering to each other. And, you know, I even saw some eye rolls. Right? And I was like, a lot of these kids are like, you know, these are our old fogey parent type people who just don't know what they're talking about. Right. Which is kind of a pretty normal generational thing to be able to do. But the kids who are like, I need to make sure I do this right. I need to make sure I'm worthy. You know, that, that kind of perfectionistic anxiety presentation is, is problematic. And that's another thing that bishops are just not taught to do. We know, for example, that it's very likely that you might have some sexual impulsivity if you're having a manic episode. Um, we know that if you're ADHD, you're probably going to take more impulsive um, decisions around sexuality, especially first sexual experiences. You know, there, there's no... It's, it's sin or no sin. There's no understanding of what's happening in this person's biology and mental health that could be part of this. If you're, if you're asexual, right. Or if you, asexuality is fine, but if you're asexual, you get like a passing, you know, you're, you're worthy all the time, not for any wonderful effort. It's because you're asexual. And then there's other reasons why you may not be sexual that are not healthy, like sexual Mm -hmm. trauma and stuff, but you're given that gold star. See, you're a good person because you're not being sexually tempted and no context of what all these, why is that person not having a hard time? Whereas this other person is having a hard time following these standards. (sighs) (laughs) We've talked a lot about the harm to children, uh, but I wonder, uh, and, and as a bishop, how many times does an adult woman who's divorced and living on her own come in and have to confess that she's doing something that is perfectly natural for a yeah. divorced woman who's been, you know, had sex for 20 years of her life, and, and then she comes in or married uh spouses one way or the other who come in and ask you is this appropriate my husband wants to do this or my wife wants to do this and i don't feel it's appropriate how often did you see that as a bishop and you're you're kind of called upon to answer their questions about their sexual needs or desires or whatever and you somehow because you were 
called to this position, you're supposed to be able to answer those. I'm supposed to be some kind of expert. Yeah, um, it's a great question. I don't know that I have the answer, but uh, a couple of observations. One, just like there's a really unhealthy age differential when a male, white male or whoever they are, is asking questions of a, of a teenager or whatever, that there's a different but still equally damaging relationship when another adult comes in and does that kind of thing, right? Uh, I remember once uh, th this um, woman in the ward came in and you could tell that this was the most uncomfortable thing that she had probably done ever to try and talk to me about what she perceived as a, a sexual indiscretion to the point that she couldn't even vocalize it. She she had prepared a little post-it tab, a little post-it note, and she sat down and she slid it across the table to me. Um, and on that was written something, right? Like whatever. I can remember it was masturbation or something, something where where and I thought, oh my God, like what are we doing here? Like why are why am I in a position where I need to have this conversation? And B, why are we putting so much pressure on these on these people, especially women? Because I think they're um I think they bear an extra burden with this type of guilt in a in a religious setting like this, right? Um, that that she couldn't even vocalize it, and it it wasn't not by by no means was it a healthy conversation, right? It was it was very much a, a, a being torn apart kind of conversation. That's part of it. And then there's the other side of this line, and I'll shut up. Is that as a high councilman, I participated in who knows dozens of um, uh, excommunication disciplinary councils, um, and they were. At, for high council, they were always men, right? Because women can be excommunicated by a bishop, but men have to be excommunicated by a state council. Sometimes a state council may choose to excommunicate a woman, but a woman can be excommunicated by a bishop, right? So they were always men that I was a part of. And it was this weird dynamic where we had 15 men. Um, we had a man who had done some sexual indiscretion, and we had his wife sitting there. And then we had 15 men pestering that, that sinner with questions like, Gosh, when you, you know, when, when you took that prostitute, what did that look like or whatever, right? And more often than not, my heart was going out to this woman who has to sit there and listen in this like position of shame as her husband describes this situation. And even though the questions weren't directed at her, how damaging is that to put her in that position where what she has to, by definition, forgive, just listen to it without really being able anyway. So I'll those are the kind of dynamics that as adults are in my mind as damaging as as the situations that you find with uh, with these kids right we're almost speechless now at this point i think we're all just like <laughs> and i i do think that obviously we're more concerned around minors because we're supposed to be protective right. but i don't think that the damage is any less yeah. when you're an adult you know it's just that we don't protect adults like we do minors and, and I think the damage is far reaching, you know, as far as, yeah, if you're, imagine that woman, right, who is coming in, has zero capacity to have a, even a relationship with her own body, has all this guilt, all this shame. Um, let's say she does get partnered. Let's say she does have sex with, you know, a married heterosexual, you know, even, even under the, the best circumstances, according to the church, as far as what righteous sex looks like, you can't tell me that that sexuality is not going to be um, 
you know, like damaged Mm -hmm. by what she's gone through earlier and that she, there's still going to be a sense of guilt around pleasure, around eroticism, around being too sexy Mm -hmm. around, you know, it's like, we kind of have this, like, I don't know, idea that being a a worthy sexual creature is kind of like, I I'm just going to kind of look at you lovingly and, and embrace (laughs) you in this Madonna, Madonna the sexual lovely where maybe we'll move a little bit, but not too much. Cause that makes me kind of sweaty, you know, and, and it'll be just this beautiful, like lovely sexual thing. And that's righteous sex. Right. And so right. I'm like, do we not have any understanding about why such a big orgasm gap exists between men and women in the church? Why do we not have, why do we have so many low desire folks? Why do we have so much duty and obligatory sex? It's because the shame doesn't just go away when it quote unquote is the right environment because you're still not really allowed to be a sexual person. I mean, I'll never forget. And this was early in my career. So I hope I can just say this story because she's probably really not around anymore, but she was in her seventies, 30 years ago. And she told me that her husband had just died. Right. And so she's coming to see me for grief counseling. Right. So here's a widow and her temple recommend was taken away because she was masturbating to the thought of her husband. And that that's one of those moments when we're even as like a 20 something therapist, I was like, this is not okay. This is not okay. This woman is traumatized. She's grieving. She's widowed. She's scared. She's, you know, she's comforting herself in a way that's completely appropriate and actually would seem be seen as healthy in every other aspect of medical science, sexual science, et cetera. And we are punishing her and expecting her to live to standards that have been written for 15 year olds in the, for standard, you know, for standards for youth or whatever, which already are full of misinformation. But now this 70 year old person, because she's single has to act like a 15 year old again. We have no conceptualization of healthy sexual adulthood. And the idea that your sexuality actually belongs to yourself. No, it belongs to God and the church and the bishop and your spouse and even your parents who can drag you into the bishop's office. Your sexuality never belongs to yourself. And that is hugely problematic when you're really kind of training people to not have sexual autonomy and that other, so many other people have a right to their bodies, to their information, Mm -hmm. there's no boundaries. And then we wonder why people are vulnerable to sexual abuse in our culture. Wow. I, I, no, I, you're I, putting it all in perspective. Go ahead, Landon. I, I experienced uh, some of that where, you know, what, what you would consider healthy um, or actually what I consider to be very moral. And that is when I was in the military, I would be sent overseas for a year at a time, year. Sometimes some guys are gone two years at a time. And then, you know, you're asked, do you masturbate? And it's like, I'm a 24-year-old guy. My wife is 5,000 miles away. Every time I walk out the gate, the, the there's prostitutes there trying to solicit you. And it's like, what's the most healthy way to take care of this uh, when I'm 5,000 miles away from my wife, you know? Uh, and and so that's the most moral option. And, and we've heard recently, uh, Rebecca and I have talked to someone, I'm trying to, I can't remember who, but they... They said uh, they, they were related to general authorities, and they said if the general authorities are gone more than three weeks, the church makes sure their wife goes with them for exactly that reason, so they're yeah. not tempted. Well, yeah. the rest of the world doesn't get that, uh, you know, the, the military doesn't fly my wife over every three weeks. Uh, <laughs> I'm there. 
and I've got no other means, you know, so so that for the church to take these absolute moral positions where there can be a moral position that is is helps you to not do something that would be damaging to your relationships or or your future, you know, with with your children, um, that that you might go do something that would harm your relationship uh, in another way, and they just don't take any accountability or any uh, sense of that. I, I I took it. Well, it's the autonomy issue. You do not have any autonomy. They tell you you're immoral. Mm -hmm. You are moral. I think I've told the story before, uh, the story about how I'm a sex addict. Yes, I said it, everybody. No. <laughs> <laughs> so at BYU, when I was almost 25 years old, I was not married and I'm dating. I'm in a relationship with a boyfriend, you know, monogamous relationship. And we stay up too late, whatever apartment, whatever things happen, not sex, just normal boyfriend, girlfriend stuff. And he decides to go to the bishop. And so he goes to the bishop and the bishop calls me in and decides that I need to go to counseling. I'm a sex addict. That's what I am because I'm a 24, <laughs> five-year-old woman within a monogamous relationship with a boyfriend, not having sex, but just doing normal boyfriend, girlfriend stuff, you know, staying up late watching TV. And so they send me to counseling at BYU. And I don't know how I lucked out, but I got a counselor who was not LDS. I don't know what that person was doing working. And again, why would I even go? Why would I go? Oh, okay. I, I guess I, I am. I, I guess I'll go. I guess I'll go over here. Again, I don't even know what I was thinking. You're just in this, you're just in this microcosm and you just do what they say. So I had to do like an intake before I got to see this counselor. And the person, and was getting my information. They're like, okay, how many partners do you have? I'm like, just one boyfriend, you know, I'm like how many times a week do you, you know, I've never had sex. I mean, you know, the person was really confused <laughs> as they were writing down my intake because, you know, I had been sent there for this other reason. And I had one monogamous boyfriend. I was just doing normal boyfriend, girlfriend stuff, you know. So I finally get in with this counselor and she's like, okay, I see why you were sent here by this bishop, but I'm reading your stuff. Explain to me what's going on. And I said, well, I don't really know what's going on. They just told me to come over here and this is all that's happening. She goes, okay. She goes, I clearly see what's going on here. You're a normal, normal 24, 25 year old girl. That's what you are. She goes, your problem is that you're here at BYU. And so you're going to have to decide, you know, you can either maybe go somewhere else and do normal boyfriend, girlfriend stuff or Try to stay away from your bishop or it's not you, basically. She said, it's them. There's nothing wrong with you whatsoever. We had one session. That was it. She set me straight. But yeah, I, I guess I haven't even processed that trauma. I tell it as a funny story, but probably Natasha is shaking her head going, girl, you've been traumatized, you know, uh, but I do I try to compartmentalize it. That's just something that. humorous. Yeah. But it wasn't. I, I believed what my bishop told me. I went to try to go to counseling and luckily found someone that said, oh, no, 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 you're fine. You're fine. You know, and it was okay. But I, I'm sure that's not the only story like that that's out there. I'm sure it's not oh, because this is the common story. Yeah. It's the common story. Yeah. And this is another thing that I think is pernicious and immoral, right? Is to convince people that there that there's something inherently wrong with them. Yeah. That there's something that, that you're diseased. Mm -hmm. You have an addiction, right? I, and you you're like, well, I was monogamous. I'm like, I don't care if you were dating three people and fucking them all at the same time. I don't. That doesn't make you a sex addict. Actually, exactly. Such thing as a sex addict, right? Like that's a whole other thing. Is that we as as conservative and fundamental religions, we're we're 
vulnerable to believing in the model of sex addiction. This is not an effective mode of best standards of care treatment for sexual dysfunction, sexual concerns, or even impulsive or compulsive sexuality. It, the sex addiction model is not it, right? But, but we use these terms we know very little about. We we basically pathologize each other. We say, yes, these are very pernicious problems that you need to go fix because otherwise you're going to, I guess, not get to your eternal salvation. And that's even pernicious, right? Because people aren't like, oh, my mommy thinks I'm a bad person or my bishop thinks I'm a sex addict. It's like, no, God thinks that this all knowing, yeah. all present being in your life who now has the, the, I mean, why do you not question it? Why did you not go, hmm, Bishop, are you sure about that? You know, it's because at some level, he's got the authority that is not of him. It's of God who has power to decide whether or not you're really going to exist in a good space after this life or not. And that's why people are so like caught up in it. It, it has to do with everything about your survival. Such a good point. And I guess, Rebecca, as a 40-something woman now, looking back on how would you go back and look at 24-year-old Rebecca, right? Like, where okay. would you, how would you, uh, where would you place the, the moral blame, I guess, in that, in that crazy situation? Yeah, isn't that interesting? To I have lots of moments in my life where I'd like to go back as my grown ass self and yank myself out of there. You know, one is the interview about learning what masturbation is. You know, I have these images of myself flinging the door open, you know, it was in a private room in this bishop's house and my little self saying, who are you? And I'm like, I'm you <laughs> and you're coming with me. You know, I just, you know, and my little self would go, wow, you still have long hair, you know, or something like that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know I'm too old to have it, but I have it. So, <laughs> but no, I do. And again, I deal with things with humor. I try to look at in a humorous way. Um, in that situation, I hadn't ever really thought about who's the villain in my, you know, I thought about that therapist and how grateful I was that she just cut right through it. And I was questioning, how are you not an LDS therapist and you're here? And she just basically said, you're normal. You're totally normal. You're just in a construct. You're in this situation where there are different standards and rules. And she said, I understand why people have to stay. You're close to getting your degree. You're working here on campus. You're going to get a job here at BYU. There are lots of reasons why you're locked in. So I never really thought of that as a villain. And I really didn't think of myself. I knew the bishop was wrong, but I just felt that I had to go through those steps for so many different reasons. If anybody was a villain, I felt it was my freaking boyfriend because come on, you can't <laughs> consensually do stuff and then go. But again, he was probably harassed. He was probably locked down by other things that he felt he had to confess. That's the thing. Everybody is a victim in the situation. Like, why can't he go and confess if that's his religious journey mm -hmm. without you getting dragged into it? This yeah. is the bishop's ass. They ask for names. Confidentiality. Always. Right. So yeah. there's no confidentiality. Yeah. Right? Oh, none. And, none and if you're. If you're if you're not ready to go through that repentance process, mm -hmm. even if mm -hmm. if we were going to say it was appropriate, you're you're forced into it prematurely because they're just dragging you in. It's not it's it's again, it's not a self-determined process. Um, right. That's very, true. very common. Has anybody ever talked to you yet, Natasha, about what you think about the whole um, idea of, you know, the whole Jody Hildebrandt? debacle and how oh, she seems to have her whole, you know, talking about 
irresponsible therapy or training, you know, her fingers in the church's programs and the church's training, training that reaches bishops, things like that. I mean, what are your and thoughts on that? I, I want to take that a step further, too. What is your thought overall of LDS therapists? Because the church tends yeah. to send you to LDS services yeah. Yeah. for that, where they're basically taught contrary to what they would have learned in school that, you know, the masturbation is natural and they can't say that. Uh, you know, they, they tend to say, you know, rely on the Lord when you're more doing something perfectly natural. And obviously that therapist, if they say the things that you, like you were saying, they wouldn't be getting referrals from the bishop anymore and they wouldn't be working for LDS services anymore. So what, not only Hildebrand, but what, what's your overall take of LDS therapy? All Yeah, it's all, it's all a big, you know, quite frankly, it's a big mix of kind of disaster. I mean, I... <laughs> even your question as to why would BYU have a non-LDS mm -hmm. therapist? Well, because BYU is federally funded, oh, federally yeah. funded, right? There you go. Federally funded universities in this country who are allowed to discriminate on non-discriminatory things like, like um, sexual orientation. That's a protected class, but, be, but religious freedom trumps protected class even if you're federally funded. So, you know, think about that cyclical, you know, disaster that we have going on in our country. This is not just a Mormon issue. Um, and so they, in order to keep those federal funds, they have to have so many people that they recruit yearly who are not a Latter-day Saint, especially in their graduate programs. That's part of their, of the, of the things that they have to meet. So, um, Plus, I mean, my experience with BYU counseling, as far as the counselors who are in there, they, they tend to be fairly progressive. And I think people would be surprised. So, but your point about religious therapists, right? How do religious therapists practice a, a field that doesn't always align with their religious convictions? And I spent, you know, over a decade in Wichita, Kansas, I can say all the Christian counseling disasters that I found. I've been in Mormonism, so all the LDS family therapies, you know, like disasters I have found. And, and the reality is that this is a problem. This is a problem. There are, there are many therapists who can hold that tension and who do it well. And who, even though they may have their own personal convictions, they don't bring that into the office. There are many who do not and who would much rather be, you know, approved of by their ecclesiastical leaders than to follow ethical guidelines from their professional licenses and associations, which is how we get somebody like Jody Hildebrandt. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and there's many, I mean, she's just a dime a dozen here in Utah. I'm sorry to yeah. say, right. Yeah. She, there's nothing really special about Jody Hildebrandt. Uh, there's tons of sex addiction centers here where they will ask you things like, well, how many times are you masturbating and, you know, and treating, you know, the sons of Helaman program, the, um, you know, sons of Moroni or whatever. You've got tons and tons of people basically doing either soft conversion work, which is like, well, sure. Yes, we'll help you not be gay. I mean, it's not really conversion therapy because I guess we're not like electrocuting your genitals anymore, but but we'll help you do that um, in order for you to be aligned with your values, you know, and that's, that's not a, that's not an LGBTQ affirming stance. Of course, if you do have a gay Latter-day Saint who wants to be celibate, I would have to respect that. But when I am like, yes, yes, let's do that. That's different than me being able to say, 
okay, so that's one option of many that you have. Have you considered the risks and benefits of all of these choices you have? That's a much more affirming behavior from a therapist. So it's a huge problem, you know, and LDS, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who've worked for LDS family services. I worked for them at the very beginning of my career for a little bit. Um, and, you know, they'll tell me things like, yeah, we're not even allowed to ask married people about their sex lives. <laughs> like, as a sex so, counselor. So LDS Family <laughs> Services has decided that they can decide how, how psychotherapy is going to work, what the rules of psychotherapy are. Uh, even have like AMCAP here. Um, it's American Mormon. It's the Association for Mormon Psychologists, Counselors, whatever, AMCAP. And who's their keynote speaker every year? Uh, Brene Brown, oh. David Schwartz, or Richard Schwartz, or like, you know, it's, it's an apostle. And what do you need to do to be able to be a member of AMCAP? You need to basically say that I will be willing to practice therapy according to church guidelines. Not, do you have your license? Has your license ever been revoked? These are the normal questions that we usually get asked, right? By associations, right. like, do you have a standing license? Has it ever been revoked by the state? You know, if not, then come into our association. No, they want to know, basically, are you going to conduct therapy in a way that goes against church teachings? How is that ethical? This is why I founded the Mormon Mental Health Association, you know, over a decade ago, because there are many Latter-day Saint providers who want to provide good ethical treatment. And that means that we're going to go up against some of these things that the church is saying is healthy that are not. And so we're in that, we're in that mix. And how do we support each other? And how do we help each other? 2000 therapists uh, signed a letter written by Dr. Lisa Hansen during my excommunication about bas basically saying we have the same positions Natasha yeah. has. This is, if you're going to excommunicate her, why are you not excommunicating 2000 of us? The, you're, you know, you're, you're overstepping your realm. The church wants to be in the realm of sex therapy. The church wants to be in the realm of mental health therapy. The church wants to be in the realm. And, and I'm like, that's not your lane. If you're going to be in the realm, then you have to do it right. But you don't want to do it right. So you have to, you have to get out of that lane. You know, just like it's not my job to, uh, as a therapist, which this happens too. A lot of times I see therapists who are members and especially male therapists who kind of start acting like bishops. <laughs> Well, that's forgivable. You know, I think that you, you've reached your level of repentance, you know, and uh, have you thought about reading these scriptures before our next session? And do, why won't you fast before our next session? That would, that's, that's a therapist acting like an ecclesiastical leader. I'm like, therapists have to stay in their lane and bishops have to stay in theirs. And, and we do not know how to do that well in conservative cultures. It's all a big mix because God's in charge and God must know what mental health is best not, not the PhD person who did five, 50 years of research. No, never going to happen. What's your experience, Joel, with uh, sending people to therapy or did, I mean, did you ever sense there might be an issue? Did you ever encourage them to go to somebody that wasn't an LDS therapist or what did they even tell bishops? Uh, yeah. So I, this is again, part of the hall of shame that I, oh, <laughs> poor Joel, I back on it, I'm like, well, I, you know, I, 12 years ago, you know, Bishop Joel should have done something different. I, oh. I did. I think give too much credence to recommendations from the church. Um, it just so happens that some of the founders of uh, of North Star and and the Jody Hildebrandt organization were in my home state, right? And so uh, there was this sort of inherent conflict of interest where the state presidency 
sort of gravitated toward them for other reasons. So I, I'm among those who sent people to that organization. I sent some of my own sons to the Sons of Helaman, right? I and 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 so there's there's nothing but uh, regret that I have about that kind of thing. And again, if I'm kind to myself, I know that I was operating within the context of what I believed to be right. <clears throat> but I, but I do look back and say, gosh, uh, should I have been more morally aware um, that these things were not right, right? So after I was released as bishop, I still tried to keep um, relationship with the church, right? It wasn't a, a shut door for me. Um, and so that the, the stake asked me to be, to be a part of the, uh, you know, the 12 the step, uh, you know, sexual uh, program of the church. And so I went, you know, once a month for a lot of, you know, a couple of years anyway, <clears throat> um, supporting those 12 step meetings. And again, that is where uh, this question of morality and what drove this bishop in Mississippi to find whatever he found repugnant, um, it's everywhere, right? Like I would go to those like those 12 step meetings and my heart would break absolutely for these men because they were always men <clears throat> that would come to these 12 step meetings and say, gosh, yeah, I, I masturbated. And prior to that, it had been 45 days or whatever. And, and that to me was heartbreaking heartbreaking and immoral on many levels, right? That we would even create that kind of environment where as a church, they had to come, especially knowing that Natasha, with all the good guidance from Mormon uh, therapists, the church should have known better, right? And, and, and to your point, willfully chose to disregard really smart, credible, uh, authoritative research uh, to gravitate toward what they must have known was wrong. Right. And, and that's where it becomes inexcusable to me. Uh, and as a participant in that process, I have to take some of the responsibility for how I behaved in that process. And how sad is that, that you as a bishop, you, you, you realize, OK, I don't have the training for this. I'm going to send them to therapy. You go to the stake and they say, oh, here's the program you want. <laughs> and you put them in a program that's just as harmful as what you would have done, because their yeah. training is religious based and not science based i guess so put you in a horrible you 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 oh. couldn't have done anything right in in this situation if and it, it only gets worse right if it can because the, the church has this rule that if they're paying for therapy which often happens mm -hmm. that now the bishop has um preview a purview into the conversations between therapists so it was fairly regular that i would call a therapist and the therapist would tell me like the conversations they were having. And that is so wrong on, on, a, on a million and a half levels, especially because after I, you know, sort of, um, as I was going through my faith crisis, I had my own financial problems and the church paid for my therapy. Um, and they came to me and they said, hey, the bishop wants to know what you are talking about. And I said, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Um, but many don't have that sort of awareness to even like say no to the church's involvement in their therapy sessions, right? They just assume that, gosh, whether I'm talking to a bishop or a therapist is all the same. They're all working together for my good. So why not allow the, my ecclesiastical leader full transparency into my therapy conversations? And that's, again, is just wrong. And the church ought to know better. They ought to know better that they're violating a therapy relationship that that ought not to be. Yeah, that's that's so. I mean, I remember when I worked for L, for LDS Family Services, it was just part of the of all the paperwork. It was just like an an 
Like I, have, I have release. I have release of information. I mean, I I will ask for a release of information to talk to a school counselor or a doctor or a psychiatrist, and, and sometimes it's appropriate for me to talk to an ecclesiastical leader. I remember one case in particular where he was very scrupulous, and I asked the client, you know, would you be okay with me talking to your bishop? Um, and and because <clears throat> the bishop was also concerned because there was like serial confessions and. So kind of the bishop and I, you know, I knew the bishop would have a little bit more clout from an ecclesiastical perspective. And I just wanted to make sure the bishop was kind of like on board and sex positive. And he was. So that was a great situation. But um, but that's different than the church asking the therapist for the information and kind of like carte blanche. You know, it's just, it's just it was just a form. I mean, they're not supposed to share anything unless you've signed a form that says, yes, you have permission to talk to my bishop. But it's just kind of like part of the paper. It's just, it's just there like, oh, okay. And I remember being uncomfortable with that, even as a burgeoning therapist myself, just that that was just a given. So I would give, I would like walk them through that. And I'd be like, you know, I, I can talk to your bishop, but this is, you don't have to sign this. And even if you do sign it, you get to decide what kinds of things I get to talk to your bishop about. It's not just, he gets all my notes and, you know, you there's different levels of release of information, even amongst the release of information. So, but I don't think people understand this. They're not. And I have heard of bishops that will say, well, if you're not willing to sign that, then we won't pay for it, which is also completely inappropriate, right? Completely inappropriate. Totally. hundred percent. No. Well, what <clears throat> goodness, I'm getting all the clumped here. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Your body, I'm sitting next to my cat. I must be allergic. My question is, what is the purpose even of a bishop? I mean, is it for repentance purposes that they would find out the details of therapy? Is it, why, why would they even need to know? I'm trying to understand yeah, that. Why do you need those level of details? Why yeah. can't you say I have a sexual... If I frame it in the context of being kind, I think that the, the, the bishop views himself or they view themselves as being part of an extended treatment team. Right where I'm, I'm okay. one more person who cares about you. I don't. I don't think the intent was I'm going to be be a spy on your therapy session, even though in practical terms that's what it resulted in. I think yes. I think that's a very kind approach. Um, I think that there's. <laughs> I think that one one reason is are these funds being used correctly? Like, is this person using therapy? to, you know, are they just, are they just wasting it? I think that was one thing that I would hear kind of out there in the, in the ethos. And then, yeah, I, I think sometimes too, it's, it's monitoring the therapist to make sure that there aren't things being said or done that the bishop would disagree with. And I think also it's monitoring to see if the therapist knows anything that hasn't been confessed to the bishop. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. It's all hand in glove kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and when you go into your bishop, that's exactly right. I agree with you, Joel. It's like, oh, they're all working for my good. If I they think I need this, I'll go here. If they think I need this, I'll go here. Everybody has my best interest at heart. And that's not always true. I think we have to realize. So well, wow, even, this conversation. Even if, what, even if what Joel says, you know, I mean, like, oh, it's for the good of the client. Yeah. Again, the bishop has this kind of idea if he's kind of drank the Kool-Aid that I get to decide what the best treatment is for mm. my client. Yes. But I have to make sure the therapist is on board with our plan, that the client is on board with our plan. And all that plan is the plan of salvation. And yeah. so the whole therapy model <laughs> is Mormon, you know, Mormon theology versus actual mental health. Mm -hmm. 
treatment, right? So, and that's often true, also, Natasha, because uh, bishops are viewed as the gateway to therapy, right? Yes. Where if a Mormon couple is having problems, their first thought often is not who's a good counselor. Their first thought is let's go to the bishop. Let's go to the bishop, right? And and the bishop now becomes that arbiter, as you talk about. They become now the gateway who decides what good therapy looks like, exactly. Uh, which only becomes it's more such complex. A problem with marriage because what are so many LDS couples dealing with today, pornography issues, disputes, sexuality disputes, how, you know, and so if you go to a therapist or you go to the bishop and the bishop has a list of Jody Hildebrandt's on his list, which is what he has, because I was taken off that list. One of my other sex therapists, LDS counselors was taken off the list because she, um, um, she recommended a vibrator to this couple. <laughs> That's what, got her, that's what got her <laughs> taken off the approved Latter-day Saint list. But no, let's send people to Jody Hildebrandt who tell you yeah. don't have sex with your husband for six months because he masturbated yeah. and have zero understanding of individual sexuality versus coupled sexuality to yeah. begin with. And so then you get these people, you know, I get a lot of men who come to see me because they've listened to me or whatever. And they're like, everything you're saying is making sense. I do want to get sexually healthy. I do know I've been lying to my wife. I do want to have all these things, but my wife will never come to see yeah. you because she wants to see the LDS approved therapist who's a sex addiction therapist, because that's what the church has said is the right route. So the church is recommending malpractice and then clients who, you know, how are they supposed to know who's right? Why am I a better therapist than the CSAT therapist, the sex, you know, the sex addiction therapist. They don't know. I know why I can give you a dissertation as to why, but you know, that's, that's not that. And, and so it really puts people so vulnerable to have shit resources, malpractice resources. Yeah. You, you said you, you sent your son to the sons of Helaman. That's malpractice. You have a right to call Doppel okay. here in the state of Utah and say, my child experienced malpractice in, in therapy. Right. Yeah. Th that reminds me um, at BYU. As if I, I need another age. reason to beat myself up, oh. Natasha. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> no, that is not what this podcast is about. No, everybody quick. Give Joel a round of applause. <laughs> ah, Joel's the most amazing person. <laughs> Again, as a parent, why would you not think that? I mean, yeah. he's got a license. Maurice Harker has a license in the state of Utah, at least yeah. until recently. Now he's in under investigation for who knows what else health yeah. things he's done. But why would you not trust his license versus my license, especially if what he's saying matches what all your ecclesiastical leaders are saying? Mm -hmm. And this scary Natasha lady sounds like, you know, sheep in wolf's clothing <laughs> or a wolf in sheep's clothing or whatever. The you hell might give someone called. a vibrator. Heaven forbid. Right. <laughs> that, that's really scary. She's kind of like an antichrist or something. So <laughs> why wouldn't you trust Sons of yeah. Helaman? Yeah. And, yeah. And we, uh, Rebecca and I talked about this. We were just talking about it uh, yesterday or something about how when you're married in the Mormon church, all of a sudden you've got this, you know, you're not a couple, you're a threesome because you've got Jesus at the top. <laughs> now you throw in the bishop, uh, you're a foursome. Um, and, and so everyone's, all these other people are playing into your marriage. And it yep. seems like the most healthy thing in the world would be just put two of you in the marriage yeah. And the two of you decide what's right yeah. and what direction you're going to go. Don't put all these other organizations and people in 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 your marriage. Then it's not a godlike marriage. I think I remember being at BYU. I took a I was engaged and I took a marriage prep class through 
of the family services um, department or whatever. And there was a textbook. It was a regular textbook. It wasn't a Mormon textbook. And so we're going through each chapter about marriage and questions and getting along. And then I'm at home looking at it and there's a whole blank section has like 20 pages that are completely blank in the book. I'm like, this is really weird. So the next time I go to class, I go up to the professor, this nice woman, and I go, there, my, there's, I think there's something wrong with my textbook. This whole section is gone. She goes, no, that section is about the healthy use of pornography in marriage. And we don't teach that. And we have actually arranged with the publisher to take that out so that we can use that textbook at BYU. And of course, that did to me what any other time I went to my bishop or fireside did, I'm like, healthy use of pornography in marriage, what? <laughs> you know, and I'm super interested, right? Because if you're going to tell, not give me the information, I'm going to go to the damn dictionary. By this time, there was almost the internet. So, you know, I could figure that one out. But yeah, they're, they're just not going to let you even see it or entertain a vibrator or a healthy use of, you know, any of that, just not on the table at all for LDS couples, not going to happen. I, I'm starting to think, Rebecca, that your bishop got it right when he diagnosed you as a sex addict. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. Now that's going to be a short. Thanks a lot. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I, so don't know. I, well, this I think that diagnosis is called curiosity. More it's than, called, uh, I was a very addict. curious yeah. kid. As I said, and, and to Natasha's point, when you're not given that kind of knowledge in, 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 as a child, you're not given any sex education, even about maturation, to the point where, you know, when I was growing up, things start. And I'm like, oh, is there something wrong? Do I need to go to a doctor? Like I did not know the normal things that were supposed to start happening to me. I was raised just in a very orthodox way without any information. And it makes you very curious. You try everything. You know, I watched episode after episode of the love boat, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. You know, what is, what is attraction? What is interaction? You know, what is all of it? And it's such a disservice to anybody, but I, I think I'm not that abnormal. I think a lot of LDS kids of my era we're raised like that. Someone will just tell them eventually. A leader, a bishop, they'll figure it out. You know? Now we know why she's a librarian. She spent yeah. so much time That's at why. the library. I'm not kidding. What her bishop it. was so teaching her. <laughs> I remember once somebody said, "Oh, what's a what's a sex what's a sexually transmitted disease?" Um, name some. Somebody said one of them to me, and I was like, "I've never heard of that before." Again, to the dictionary. You know, you just that's it. The encyclopedia. That was the information back then. So I don't know. Wow. This conversation could go on and on forever. I think it's been really, really interesting. I think I'd like to end, first of all, by saying, Joel, you're a wonderful person. You do not deserve a hall of shame. Yeah, you are. you yes. were an incredible bishop. I know you were a caring and wonderful individual, and I know you helped so many people. And I think you have... I mean, maybe I'll ask you as the final thing, what would your hope be going forward for bishops? Maybe a bishop will see this podcast. I don't know. What would you hope? I mean, from your experience and what you're, you learned, what would you hope for anyone in that position? That is such a timely question. While I was running, uh, which I just started doing again because COVID killed any mental or oh, physical yes. health for me. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> um, I ran by a church and I thought, gosh, if, if someone came to me today and said, Joel, will you be a bishop? Um, what would be my conditions, right? What would be the five things that would have to be true in order for, because I love being a bishop. Like honestly, it was, uh, it was gut wrenching and soul tearing for me to be released because it was, uh, despite all the weird things that happen and the moral challenges it presents, it is really, um, a nice position. It's, it's a great place to be in a position where you can help and make a difference. Right. So, um, there's a few things that I think that you, so on my list of things is a, I would need female counselors, but B I would need the ability 
to not uh, put sexual things in the unhealthy light or treat them in the way that they are today. I would expect, for example, that we take a more sane approach to how we deal with finances. I just sat down with my 86-year-old father two days ago who was on a very limited fixed income, like barely afford food kind of level. And as I walked through his budget, He's spending a hell of a lot of money on tithing. And I thought, boy, where does morality begin and end when a $200 billion organization yeah. is extracting that level of income from, from a person who can barely afford food, right? Um, anyway, so there would have to be some of those kind of changes. But it raises the fundamental question for me, Rebecca, of uh, can the church make those changes? Can the church become the type of organization that doesn't perpetuate these moral problems? Um and I don't know. I don't know because everything we're talking about, uh, if a bishop did that, right? If a bishop showed the sort of courage that we saw in Mississippi, uh, do they not just get Sam Younged? I just turned that into a verb. It's um, a verb. <laughs> and, and now get uh, excluded. I think they would, right? So there's, there's courage in the moment. And we know that uh, those of us who um, are uh, constructive critics on the sideline generate the most positive change for the church. Um, but anyway, so I, I, one more quick thought and then I'll shut up. I did consider, despite my hall of shame, I did consider myself a fairly progressive bishop. Mm -hmm. About this time, there was an intense amount of scrutiny around this question of what being gay meant. Um, and I, I invested a decent amount of time wrestling with the question. I, I, I tried to expose myself to um, an understanding of what that meant. And, and to the stake president's credit, he asked, actually asked me to do a training for all the other bishops in the stake um, on, on how we might think about that. Now, in retrospect, it was not even good training or certainly not perfect training, but it was an attempt at least for us to affect change within an organization that is change resistant. Um, and so I introduced the idea, for example, that being gay was not a choice, um, which flew in the face of many of the bishops who were then sitting at the time. So there's that kind of stuff that I think bishops who wrestle with these moral questions of can I be a good bishop and also not uh, totally succumb to moral, you know, moral problems? Um, I think there's room for that within the church. It's a limited margin, though. Yeah. Uh, there's a limited margin. Like if I said, "Hey, in order to be bishop, I need a female counselor," they'd say, "Oh well, thanks. Looks like we made the wrong choice." <laughs> <laughs> and how? <laughs> so, anyway, it, it's I, my hat goes off again to those. Who, who try to at least be conscious and mindful of these things, whether they're bishop or anybody in the church, and try to affect that change uh, to the extent that they can. Because I think there's some some latitude to, to affect positive change without having to, uh, you know, to, to invoke the nuclear option uh, and leave it all together. I know. And that's the problem. The ones that are progressive, that have ideas, willing to listen, hoping to change. Once they, Once your leaders recognize that's who you are, you're often just replaced. We've seen that over and over where a leader will say, you've got to excommunicate that guy. You know, some of the September 6th are like this. And the bishop says, I won't do it. You're out, you're in, you know? So there is that sense that, although I in concept disagree with it, when people say, oh, I can affect change from the inside, you know, in the position of a bishop, so that may be more true. Margin. Yeah. Than other people, you know, when, when everyone who's good just leaves, then what are you left with? So, which is... It's a question. So um, in closing, why don't we have Natasha, why don't you tell us more about your organization and everything that you do? And if anybody wants to learn more and how we can find you or 
information about anything we've talked about. <laughs> you have another hour. No. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And if, if you don't mind, I might just share some closing thoughts too. Yes, please, that. please, but, um, please. You no, know, I, I do definitely sense the conflict, right, that Joel is bringing to the table, right? Like on the one hand, he loved his calling. On the other hand, now with some perspective, he understands how many some of the things he did, you know, caused harm. And I, and, you know, and I don't think that makes you a bad person. I think that makes you a self-aware person and an evolving person. And I think that's beautiful. And I think that's more of what we need as a whole, you know, as a system, we need to make some systemic changes in the church. And I, I know the church is in, you know, between a, hard, a rock and a hard place as far as who they're going to keep happy and who's going to leave or who's going to stay if, if, you know, if they make some of these changes, but um, you know, I, I'm a big believer in Martin Luther King's comment of, you know, the arc of justice, you know, ways in a, a certain direction. And, and we have to be intentional as to whether or not we're going to follow that arc of justice versus being worried about numbers. Right. So to me, that's, that's the calling of being a church to begin with is that you're going to follow, um, you know, Christ-like principles. You're going to follow health. You're going to follow well-being. You're not going to be like, oh no, are we going to lose a few members? Right. So that, that wouldn't be, I would hope that they're functioning from that perspective. And, and I would like to say just by the nature of the calling, and I've said this again for years, there is no Bishop who is not causing harm. That's just an impossibility with how the structure and the power dynamics are set up. So you can be the best, most loving bishop. You are still causing harm by what is expected of you, especially in these ideas of whether or not you're going to deem somebody worthy, you know, that you have the right to tell somebody you are unworthy. That is causing harm, right? So, um, so you are just expected to act in ways that the church has not faced that are spiritually abusive. And, and, that, and, and there's a lot of research just to, to show what spiritual abuse means. If people are, are interested, you know, just go Google spiritual abuse, you, you know, talk about spiritual trauma. We're not the only church talking about this. There are many other churches in the United States grappling with similar issues. Um, and I, you know, I'll just go through my litany of things. I, I do think that at, at, at this time in 2023, it is not only ignorant, but it is immoral to use, um, the excuse, but sorry, that's what God says is right or wrong. When first of all, we know that, you know, who gets to decide what God is saying is highly, you know, subjective. And that has changed even in our short history as a, as a very young church, you know, we're not like a world religion that's been around for thousands of years, just in the hundreds of years we've been around we've had a lot of different ideas about what God is telling us, depending on who's, you know, so I think that's a basic lesson we need to learn is that we can't just ignore an entire section of our community, like the LGBTQ plus population and say, sorry, God said it was heterosexuals only, darn it. I guess we'll try to be loving, but not our fault, you know, that we're discriminating assholes to you. Right. And that we basically traumatize you every six months at general conference. That is not an okay excuse anymore. Um, so I think the discrimination we have against sexual orientation and gender identity are immoral in our church. I think it's immoral that we still see masturbation as a sin and that we have no capacity to understand sexuality from an individual perspective, not just a married perspective or coupled perspective. 
I think it's immoral to have untrained lay clergy be expected to sit with people and ask sexually explicit questions with no understanding of trauma-informed care um, or how those conversations might actually re-traumatize people. I think it's immoral to not offer children accurate sexual education and to lie to them and give them misinformation. Um, so, you know, I, I could probably come up with several more things, but th those are the things that I think are immoral. And of course, as a sex therapist, those are the concepts I care most about. Maybe there were other issues like finances and things like that. I get it. There's lots of, of things, but those are the things that I see carrying grave weight, especially in a church that makes so much about sexual worthiness, right? And so many times, you know, when we talk about the, the, the evils of the world, I don't think most people at church are sitting going, huh, does that mean that I cheated on my ACT? <laughs> I think people are saying, oh, does that mean we're watching pornography? And, and what's so horrible about that is that when we talk about evils of the world, most people aren't even thinking about sexual slavery, sexual coercion, sexual rape. They're thinking, oh, did I masturbate or look at mm -hmm. porn? Mm -hmm. so even in the context of sexual sin, quote unquote, we don't have a healthy spectrum of what actual sexual evil is versus just natural sexual things that come up for people in the diversity of human sexuality. So that's my concern. As far as me, I, as you can see, I'm very passionate about the topic. <laughs> and I, I and thank uh, goodness you are. <laughs> so my my trade is as being a marriage and family therapist and also a sex therapist. I am certified as a sex therapist, which I is not very common. I'm one of maybe 10 or 15, maybe now, and that I'm aware of in Mormon land that have that certification and are still members. And, um, and of course I'm not a member because I was forced out, but I would still be a member if, mm -hmm. if that hadn't happened. So, um, that's, that's what I do. And I, so I work with individuals and couples, um, just in my practice, my practice is called symmetry counseling. Um, it's been symmetry solutions, but we're changing it to symmetry counseling so we can be more clear about what we're offering. And so I offer, I also offer groups. I group, I offer groups on religious trauma, on reclaiming female sexuality, on recovering from male sexual shame for all these people who've been in these 12 step programs for years, or, you know, seeing like inaccurate therapists and they just need to be able to recover and understand what actual male sexual health looks like and be your own autonomous male sexual person that's emotionally intelligent, sexually intelligent, and no longer having this the super harmful um, relationship with sexual secrecy, which I think we we help little boys develop from an early age mm -hmm. in our culture. Um, I offer um, you know groups for marriage and you know healthy marriage. You know post religion. I, I don't think we're taught a lot of um, skills sets around how to have even conversations or conflict or conflict. You know a resolution when conflict is seen of the devil, right? So. Yeah. I think we just lack a lot of relational skills. I also offer groups for ethical non-monogamy because sometimes when people leave the church, they're kind of curious about restructuring their relationships. I want people to be best equipped for those kinds of um, decisions if they're heading in that direction. So I offer a lot of things like that. I also offer, because as you mentioned, I offer a lot of things for therapists. I'm an ASECT supervisor, so I train sex therapists. I, uh, um, I just started a website called learnreligiontherapy.com. And this is where I will be offering CEs for therapists to learn how to work with religious folks along the whole spectrum, the Orthodox folks, the transitioning folks, the post folks, um, 
even though we're told that, yeah, we're supposed to get training in diversity and cultural diversity and, and religion is mentioned. Yes. You need to be aware of people's religions and, and that's about the training we get. (laughs) Just be aware. aware. (laughs) And we have problems on both sides. We have secular therapists who really don't understand the intricacies of religion or who will kind of minimize religion or see religion as silly, which is not appropriate when people are coming in with their, you know, their most sacred kind of convictions and ideas and community and values and identity. And then you have the religious therapists who are like, oh yeah, I get all that. And in fact, we're going to do therapy via, you know, my God's way. And, um, and, and that, so the bias is really, really struggling on both sides, whether you're secular or religious. And so I feel very passionate about having the types of training that helps us as therapists recognize our own bias, understand the literature, understand what vulnerabilities we have, um, whether we're religious or not, and then how to work with people in the best, most ethical, best standards kinds of ways. So that's me. I'm, I'm in it for it all. I want to do it all. I want to help the individual. I want to help the relationships. I want to help the therapists and I'm, I'm here for it. So you can find the church would listen to you. Right. If only the church would listen to you. (laughs) But you can find me at natashahelfer.com or of course symmetrypath.com is our is our current um URL. Okay. And we'll we'll put all these links in the show notes so that everybody can connect as they would like to. So wow, what a conversation. Landon, any final thoughts? I just appreciate both of you coming on, uh, Natasha. We've seen you so many things, and you're so fun to be around. And and Joel has just been someone who's given us so much insight. Uh, He's such a kind person and and such great insight. And uh, we appreciate you being willing to come on uh, on the show. So really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been amazing. I wasn't exactly sure where the conversation would go. We had this framework, but boy, I think this is very valuable. So please, everybody watching, comment, let us know. What did you think of what we talked about? Did any part of this resonate with you? Have you had, I'm guessing, yes, some of the experiences that we talked about? Because you don't really escape Mormonism unscathed. I think a lot of the things we talked about are unfortunately really common things that a lot of us went through growing up. So are you a former bishop yourself that can see the other side of it, like Joel expressed? Please let us know what your thoughts and feelings are about this because it's a really important topic and a dialogue needs to be continued, I think. Um, like and subscribe to Mormonish Podcast. And if you'd like to be made aware of when new episodes hit, you can hit that notification bell and you'll be made aware of when they drop. Also, if you would like to support Mormonish Podcast financially, we have links to Venmo and PayPal in the show notes always. And we appreciate all of you that do. It just means so much to us. And again, thank you so much, Natasha. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Landon. And we'll say goodbye for now for Mormonish Podcast. Thanks, everybody. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.